looking at the life of David, um, a man after God's own heart. And today we're going to be focusing our attention upon a prayer that's probably one of the greatest prayers in the Bible, not the greatest, but one of the great Old Testament prayers that are worthy of lots of study and thought. And so we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 29 out of chapter 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord, for there is none like you. There is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name in doing it for them? Uh, excuse me, let me repeat that verse. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you establish for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken to your servant concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you, for you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this particular text of Scripture as we find it before us today. And how we pray that we might hear your word as it goes forth from your mouth. And that that word will not return empty or void from you, but will prosper where you send it. Uh, just as rain and snow descending from the heavens water the earth and cause uh, plants to bring forth and bud, so may your word that goes forth from your mouth today prosper where you send it, accomplish your will, and bring glory to your name 
and lift up our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen. What a remarkable prayer we have before us today. And this prayer has a context. If you weren't here last week or haven't been listening, the context of this prayer is God's covenant with David, his uh, engagement with David in uh, chapter, uh, chapter 7 up to this point. Uh, David has just received from God astounding promises through Nathan the prophet. Those promises, that is the covenant with David, assure the king that the promises to Israel will find their fulfillment in his descendants. God, David's son, excuse me, David's son uh, will build God's temple and will himself be the son of God. And it's important to see that these promises make the descendants of David the focus for the fulfillment of all of God's purposes. In response to this covenant, David falls to prayer. In his prayer, he acknowledges for all to hear his unworthiness. And he praises God for his greatness and his grace shown toward Israel. And he prays that God will do the very things just as he has promised he would do. It is conceivable that David prays like this because he is nervous that God might go back on his word. Excuse me, it's inconceivable that David, knowing what he knows, would ever pray like this because he's nervous that God will not hold up his end of the covenant. David's prayer is confident, yet his petitions in effect say, your will be done. He needs courage to pray this because he's aware that he deserves none of these good things that God has given to him. God has promised this man a dynasty out of which will come the initial fulfillment of Solomon building the temple in Israel and the place where God's glory comes and dwells in the temple and the nations indicated by the Queen of Sheba come and see the glory of God that Israel was always to be a light to the nations. We know that even a greater fulfillment comes when Jesus himself comes the first time, is crucified, buried, raised again to the right hand of the Father, and will come back. While in, in between the two comings of Christ, God's son, the son of David, is currently building a temple, not of stones, but of living stones of people where God himself will dwell. The promises of the covenant where God says, I will be your God. Now, all of you know my wife, Pam. You don't know her well, maybe, but you know who she is. She's over there. Her name is Pam. She's my Pam. She's mine. I married her, and I'm hers. And when we look at each other, we know I'm yours, you're mine. And God has said to his people, I am your God. Can't get any more personal than that. God says to his people in the covenant, I am your God and you will be my people. There is a precious, intimate connection here. But when I look at this prayer by David, I'll tell you what grasps my attention more than anything else is the personal nature of it. Now we all know a little bit about prayer, don't we? Prayer is nothing more or less than conversation and communion with God. 
It is us speaking back to God as God reveals himself to us or we come to God with some kind of conception of who he is and who we are and we speak to him. He speaks to us primarily through his word. We speak back to him through prayer. But many Christians pray as if the God of the Bible is a giant ATM machine in heaven. That is, our prayers could pretty much be reduced not to this great, astonishing outburst of praise that, God, that David gives to God in this prayer, but rather, God, I need this, and I need this, and please hurry up and provide this, and please give me this, and please help me stop doing this. And it, it becomes a, a, a recital of the pronoun me. Our prayers are so self-centered. James talks about those prayers not being answered because they are upon our craving desires that we have within our soul. But here we see a prayer that is generated by God's goodness to David. Here's a guy who's praying like a real Christian, like he gets it. He understands it. He, for the first time, maybe not only for the first time, but even in a deeper and more powerful way, is beginning to understand how I relate to this covenant-keeping God. What is the ground I stand upon when I pray? And so David, when he approaches God and he considers all that God has promised him and all that God has already delivered from him, and his life was not an experience of just a ride uh, uh, on a smooth river to uh, a kingdom, uh, fantasy-filled. Rather, it was a hard 30 years of difficulty and suffering uh, before he is even becomes the king. But when you look at this prayer, you see the reality of a soul who's astonished by the grace of God, who is utterly lost. Somebody who is overwhelmed by the greatness of God. Now let me ask you in your prayer life, your average prayer, how much time do you spend praising God for who he is? How much time do you speak back to him his word on how great? You know, I think prayer and Bible study go together. I think it's wonderful to pray his word back to him. But I see in David's case, he does exactly this. He remembers the covenant God has made with him. And that generates in him authenticity and a prayer that is real communion and communication with God. This is not a guy trying to get something out of God. This is not a guy afraid that God won't hold up his end of the covenant. But rather, this is a guy who is absolutely smitten, absolutely floored and awed by God's grace to him because David knew himself. He knew what he was apart from God. He knew his own sin. And therefore, the grace of God stood out in uh, brilliance before that. And so the promises of God here leads him to give a prayer of praise. God has done for him an incredibly gracious thing. Of course, you know, if you've been here at all for any length of time, that uh, I am a person who particularly loves the grace of God. I can see as well as that that Dave McGuire, who led worship today, always begins his introduction to you by saying, I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God. 
But David understood that everything God promised him, everything God was going to do for him and his people, was the generation or was generated by his grace, not by how good David was or not by how obedient Israel was, because neither were. But what he had come to realize in a deepening way is the awesomeness, the absolutely astonishment of grace coming home to you. When I was a little kid, one of my favorite things to do was to see a gumball machine. You know those gumball machines that are full of chewing gum that are hard on the outside, and some of them are kind of melted together and been there 30 years. But anyway, you know how that is. Uh, but there are these little gumball machines, and you put a penny in it, and you'd have to crank the penny, and when the penny dropped, the gumball came out. And that was absolute delight to me. Uh, kept every dentist in town in business. So I remember the joy of getting those. But when I speak of the penny dropping, here the penny drops for David. Here he begins to see the graciousness of God. And when we look at the concept of grace, we all kind of understand what it means, but we all kind of don't. And there's something about God's grace that's downright outrageous. The real grace is simply inexplicable. It seems almost inappropriate because of our sense of justice. It seems at times offensive, excessive, too much, given to the wrong people, and all of those things. And yet grace is one of the most important concepts in the Bible. The Bible is all about the message and ministry of Jesus, and the message and ministry of Jesus is grace given to sinners and sufferers. You can call it what you like. You can categorize it any way you want to. You can vivisect it. You can qualify it. You can quantify it. Or you can dismiss it. And none of it will make grace anything than other than what it precisely is. Grace is audacious. It is unwarranted. And it is unlimited. When we talk about grace and understand it, we can say this, the center of the Bible and the center of Christianity is found in the grace of God. And the necessary corollary of grace, of the grace of God, is salvation through faith alone. All that faith is in relating to God is not something we work up to merit God's grace, but rather, as Calvin said, it's the empty hand that receives it. Faith is the instrument, the empty hand, presenting nothing to God and receiving pure gift from him and having a repentant heart. Grace is the love of God shown to the unlovely, the peace of God given to those who are restless, the unmerited favor of God. Grace is free, sovereign favor to the ill-deserving. Grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. Grace is God reaching down to his people who are in utter rebellion against him. Grace is unconditional love toward a person who has no reason to merit or deserve it. Grace is most needed and best understood in the midst of sin and brokenness and suffering. And we live in a world that heralds earning and deserving and merit and getting what you deserve. 
And the result is judgment, condemnation in reference to God comes. Judgment kills, only grace makes alive. A lot of people I run into these days talk a lot about karma. Karma is all about getting what you deserve. Christianity teaches that getting what you deserve is death with no hope of resurrection, or that is resurrection and an embodied state in a place called hell forever. Grace is the opposite of karma. While everyone desperately needs it, grace is not about us. It is fundamentally a word about God and his uncoerced uh, uh, initiative and pervasive extravagant demonstrations of care and favor. Michael Horton says this. He says, in grace, God gives nothing less than himself. Grace, then, is not a third thing or substance mediating between God and sinners, but grace is Jesus Christ in redeeming action. Grace is as complete as God himself and expresses the quality of his character. God himself is in it. He reveals his very essence as his grace streams forth. God's action in grace toward us is inexhaustible. Paul talks about the abundance of grace, the sufficiency of grace, the surpassing riches of grace. In the Christian tradition, there are many adjectives that have accompanied the word grace. Free, scandalous, surprising, special, inexhaustible, incalculable, wondrous, mysterious, overflowing, abundant, irresistible, costly, extravagant, and more. My favorite, of course, is by John Calvin. He calls it gratuitous grace. Gratuitous is the idea of something being unwarranted or uncalled for. When I acted up as a kid or did something wrong, and it was usually in public, more often than not in church, my dad would had a way of waiting in the lobby for me to come out the door, and the next thing I would feel is his hand grab my arm and says, we gotta go. And I said, where's everybody else? He said, me and you, we gotta go. And I said, why? And he said, we're gonna deal with this once and for all. What you did in that worship service was uncalled for. Everything we do in life Apart from Christ, that is sin, is uncalled for. And yet God gives us grace. And grace melts the heart. Grace is the only thing that changes the life. The law of God certainly instructs us. The law of God threatens us. The law of God commands us. It exposes us. It shows us our sinfulness. It shows us our inability to change ourselves. But grace comes along and does what the law cannot do. The law can show us what to do, but it cannot give us the power to do it. And only grace can give the power. And David was flooded. His soul was flooded with grace. Religion is not grace. <laughs> uh, Robert Capone, who I really like, explains with the following paragraph. The world is by no means averse to religion. In fact, it's devoted to it with a passion. It will buy any recipe for salvation as long as the formula leaves the responsibility for cooking up salvation firmly in human hands. The world is drowning in religion. 
It is lying full fathom 40 in the cults of spiritual growth, physical health, psychological self-improvement, and ethical probity, not to mention the religions of money, success, upward mobility, sin prevention, cooking without animal fats, but it's scared out of its wits by any mention of grace that takes the world home gratis. Religion tries to domesticate grace. T.F. Torrance said, Grace is costly to man because it lays the axe to the root of all his cherished possessions and achievements, not the least in the realm of his religion, for it is in religion that man's self-justification must reach its supreme and most subtle form. Religion can be the supreme form taken by human sin. Jacques Ellul, the French reformer, said this, Grace is the hardest thing for us to be reconciled to because it implies the renouncing of our pretensions, our power, our pomp, and circumstance. It is the opposite of everything our religious sentiments are looking for. Grace reveals our natural pride of self-sufficiency as well as the pride of spiritual progression. Nothing is more devastating to spiritual pride than the grace of Almighty God. Therefore, our response to God's grace includes a recognition of our deep sinfulness and the rejection of all confidence in ourselves and our abilities. Unmerited favor for undeserving sinners is never, ever comfortable. That's why religion tries to domesticate grace. But... Capone continues, Christianity is not a religion, it is the proclamation of the end of religion. Religion is a human activity dedicated to the job of reconciling God to humanity and humanity to itself. The gospel, however, is the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, an astonishing announcement that God has done the whole work of reconciliation without a scrap of human assistance. That man gets it. He gets it. You can't add anything to grace or you'll destroy it. And you can't limit the power of what it can do in an individual life. And when David stands before God and says, who am I? The penny drops. He gets it. He gets it. Do you? Is the basis of your relationship with God based upon anything you do or how well you do it or how Often you've forsaken your worst sin, or is your relationship based on Jesus Christ? Because I'll conclude this moment of grace. I just love this so much I could talk about it for days. But I'll conclude it with a final statement. Martin Luther declares the good news this way. God receives none but those who are forsaken. Restores to health to none but those who are, sick, who are sick. Gives sight to none but the blind. And life to none but the dead. His mercy on none but the, has mercy on none but the wretched. And gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. That is the grace of God. Grace is identical with Jesus Christ. Thus it would be just as wrong to speak of many graces as of many Christ, or sacramental grace as of a sacramental Christ, or of created grace as of a created Christ. Grace is the self-giving of Christ to us in which he both redeems us 
and recreates us such a self-giving that he invites us to himself and makes us share in the very life and love of God himself. And so here we see David caught up in it. There was a Christian song I heard about 20 years ago. I don't even know who sang it, but the song went something like this. He did it, I get it, and now I'm caught up in it. I thought, well, that's a good course if it means what I think it means. He did it. That is, God did everything necessary to save sinners by giving his son, Jesus Christ, who accomplished for us the obedience God requires and suffered for us the penalty our sin deserves. And when we receive him with the empty hand of faith, we begin to get it. The lights come on. Life comes. We're new creatures in Christ Jesus. There's a passion for a relationship with him. Now, I was going to talk about also how David proclaims the greatness and uniqueness and set-apartness of this God who has entered into covenant with him. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, and I know many of you have just recently read it, speaks of the majesty of God, but he, he, he basically says that the majesty of God is a synonym for the greatness of God. He is far above us in greatness and therefore is to be adored. Great is the Lord and greatly to be, to be praised. The Lord is a great God and a great king. Oh, come and let us worship and bow down, we sing today. But we seem to lack that so often in our churches today. A recent book that uh, Phillips wrote, Your God is Too Small, was a timely title. We are poles apart from our evangelical forefathers at this point, even when we confess our faith in their words. When you start reading Luther or Edwards or Whitfield, though your doctrine may be theirs, you'll soon find yourself wondering whether they have any acquaintance or whether you have any acquaintance with, at all with the mighty God whom they knew so intimately. David is overwhelmed by how great... God is and how gracious he is and what makes him great is his grace time for point two a perspective on God's people the next verses he begins to talk about the peerless people of God the uniqueness of the people of God in the old covenant Israel in the new covenant the church and in my theology and understanding, Israel is representative of the people of God of all ages, both Jew and Gentile. The church is international. The church is the people of God. Galatians tells us that that mostly Gentile church was the Israel of God but that God's people have been redeemed. They've been set apart. God has fought for them. God has brought them into the land. God has established them. God has blessed them, even in their rebellion and resistance against him. And so David is grateful for the people of God. He is overwhelmed because of the people of God. And so... I think as we look at that carefully, we see that there's something about being in covenant with God that sets us apart from the rest of creation. He preserves us. He redeems us. He gives us great and mighty privileges. But to close and continue to the end, let's talk a little bit about 
prayer as pleading the promises of God. If you look at your quote in the bulletin, it's by an old Puritan by the name of John Trapp. And the only reason I know who John Trapp is is because Charles Haddon Spurgeon quoted him all the time. And so, you know, I'm reading, well, if he's quoting him, maybe I need to read a little bit of John Trapp. Here's what John Trapp said in the quote. Promises must be prayed over. God loves to be burdened with and to be urgently pressed with the request in his own words. He loves to even be sued upon his own bond, for prayer is putting God's promises into suit. And it is no arrogancy nor presumption to burden God, as it were, with his own promises. God takes delight when his children come to him and pray back his promises. Because that's the reality of faith. That's all we have. As we come to him in our prayer life and, and we're burdened with whatever we're burdened with, my encouragement to you is find a promise in God's word that you can plead before him. That makes prayer authoritative and real and it sets before God a heart that looks to him and him only for blessing. Pleading the promises of God. Are your prayers filled? with astonishment at God's grace, with an overwhelming sense of his greatness and our smallness? And are your prayers characterized by pleading before his face his own promises? You know, some, some of us think, well, God must be perturbed at me coming back over and over and over again, pleading his promises before him. Never stop. Never stop. Plead his promises. You're praying for a child. You're praying for a friend. You're praying for a parent. You're praying for a coworker. Continue to plead the promises of God, especially for your children, the promises of the covenant, of being in covenant with God. And so we see in this majestic prayer, this overwhelming prayer, the beauty of his calling out and rehearsing before God, God's own promises to himself. And it's really thrilling and uh, stirring to our hearts to see him doing that. Uh, David's prayer moves from praise to petition. He asks that astounding promises be converted into historical reality. But Yahweh's promise is the whole starting point and basis of God's petition. Now you say, well, why should I pray for something God's already promised? Because God's sovereign. He's going to do what he said he's going to do. What do I, if God is sovereign, why pray? You ever heard that? If you're a PCA preacher, you've heard that. People come to you and go, well, you've got God sovereign. You've got him executing his will. Nothing can stop him. He's going to bring all things and fulfill all things he's promised and bring them to pass. What do I need to pray for? Because God almost, I can't say this with dogmatism, but almost every time God fulfills a promise, a prayer of a saint is involved in the fulfillment of that promise. That means your prayers and shake the world that means that your prayers have power God has ordained that he will fulfill his promises but he's ordained the fulfillment to come through as a secondary cause the prayers of his people do you get that 
Do you understand how significant prayer is in the life of a believer? How God will use the prayers of his people to accomplish his will on the earth? That's a pretty significant place to be used. You know, we, we laugh at times when we go, well, I wish I could help you. I guess all I can do is pray. You ever say that to somebody? Well, we'll certainly pray for it. And you go, yeah, thanks a lot. No, you don't say that. But you, you sort of think, well, thanks a lot. You know, don't, don't over, overdo yourself. Sorry for the sarcasm, but it's in me. Uh, and the Lord's trying to sanctify. But what I mean by that is, praying is not doing nothing. Prayer's not wasted time or energy. Prayer's not just an add-on. Prayer is the heart of it. But I guarantee you the only people who I know that pray faithfully and consistently are people who are astonished by the grace of God, who see their own smallness and sinfulness, and who cry out because God is great and claim the promises before him. And that's a powerful prayer warrior. Elijah, a man of like passions, prayed, James tells us. And God answered his prayer through demonstrating his superiority to the nation's gods. One of the things that we know from the book of Exodus is that when God redeemed his people and the ten plagues occurred, every single plague was connected to a false god in Egypt. God was delighted to use that moment to demonstrate his superiority over the gods of this age who are nothing but idols and no gods at all. But please learn to know that a prayerless heart is a sinful heart. I think it was Samuel who said, God forbid that I should sin against you by not praying. Do you pray for your pastor? Do you pray for the elders? Do you pray for the deacons? Do you pray for the church? Do you pray for one another? Do you pray for the lost? Do you pray for missions? And you say, well, that just sounds like a big long list, and, you know, I ain't got the energy to do that half the time. If <laughs> you're astonished by God's grace, you're overwhelmed by his greatness, you understand that you're his people, uniquely called, set apart, belong to him. You're in relation with the covenant God, in relationship of the deepest kind. You are his, he is yours, that you can fully communicate your heart to him. He will not be uh, undone by how you come to him and speak to him, as long as it's with reverence and understanding. But those kind of people praying is a powerful thing. And I would all encourage every person in this room to begin to pray for revival, not revivalism, but genuine Holy Spirit-sent, God-generated renewal and revival for the church in the world. Because it's not just bad here. It's bad everywhere. And we need strength. So David, in this chapter, shows us a prayer that's real. It's authentic, and it's heartfelt. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which bids us fly and gives us wings. We thank you that you have ordained that prayer is the means by which you work in the world, that we can confidently turn to you,
at any moment and plead your promises. And it's not wasted time. And though we may not see results, that doesn't mean there aren't results. But there are many things you do that we will never know till we get to the other side. But so many of us say, I would love to serve the Lord, I would love to uh, serve the church, but I'm not really good at teaching, or I'm not really good at leading, or I'm not really good at doing this or that in the church, but you can pray. And that's not a, a, a patronizing thought. That should be first on the list. You can pray. Now, Father, we pray you'll bless this church as we continue to serve you here we pray that people will give today because they're amazed by your grace and overwhelmed by your greatness that you have deigned to call us your own and this we pray in jesus name amen